Leviticus 11 is where we are this morning. Um, I'll tell you about when I got married. I'll tell you a little bit of my story from that. So when I got married, um, as for many of you who have been married, something fundamental changed in my life. Um, and I wasn't really ready for what that fundamental change was. So, uh, so when Andrea and I were dating, um, Andrea was a really nice addition to my life. Right? Like, I, I was glad that I had her with me, right? Like, we were happy together. Uh, we got along really well. We communicated well together. That was a good thing. Uh, so we, t- we talked a lot. We laughed with each other a lot. We had a lot of fun together. Uh, and we did, like, kind things for each other, right? That was, like, uh, our dating life. And I really liked, when we were dating, I really liked what Andrea added to my life. I still do by the way, so just, this isn't going to take like a bad turn, right? I just want to let you know. Uh, I still do like what she adds to my life. But when we got married, something fundamentally changed. Because we went from simply being additions to each other's life to our lives being kind of uh, intricately intertwined together. Right? So, um, so my time, like what I did with my time, my time became our time, right? My living space became our living space. You see where this is going. My money became our money. You know, and that's a good thought in theory, right? But, uh, but in practice, it was something quite different because before we were married, Alex liked to spend money. I still do, by the way. I still do like to spend money. Um, but uh, Andrea, she was, she was very frugal to her credit, right? She, she did well with money. And early on, um, I was still in seminary when we got married. So early on in our marriage, you know what I would do? And this is something that existed before we ever got married. But now we lived further away from where I was going to school. So it basically ensured that this would happen every single day. Every single day, I would stop and get fast food. Every day, I would stop at like you know, McDonald's, Burger King, whatever. Yeah, I like and like without you could expect it. It would show up. Like I would stop either on the way to school or on the way back from school or both. And then sometimes in the middle of the day, right? This was a problem. I had a problem, right? And so, uh, so you know, I was not really paying much attention to the damage that this did to our budget. And uh, and then one day, Andrea said to me, "Can we talk?" And you all know what can we talk means, right? Yeah, you understand what that means. So, uh, so she, you know, she brought up to my attention this, uh, this damage that I was doing to our budget with my eating habits. And so, um, so I just want to ask you in my self-righteousness, what kind of person thinks they get to talk to me about my eating habits, right? Like if I went up to any of you and said, hey, we got to talk about your eating habits. <laughs> right, that, would, that would be a little intense, wouldn't it? Like you might not want to come back to church after I have that conversation with you. And this is how I've lived my life up until this point. And so I'm sitting here thinking, who does she think she is? Oh, that's right. She's my wife, 
right? Like we share a life together. Whose money am I spending when I go and eat all that fast food? It's not just my money anymore. It's our money, right? So now I had to, to be humbled in this process. Uh, and, and on top of that, not only am I going to eating fast food, but my wife is buying groceries with our money to make sure that I have what I need to eat, right? So, so then I'm, I'm disrespecting her time and the energy that she's putting in, and I'm spending our money in the process. And you know what I think, or I thought when all of this, I thought, you know, goodness, this marriage thing is very invasive, Right, it's like disturbing my peace, my way of doing things because she can see the money that I spend on fast food and she actually has the right to address what I am doing with that money because it's not just my money, it's our money. And now I have to consider how my spending affects not only me, I have to consider how it affects both of us together. And you know what, I really don't like that, but I love her. Right? And I love what the Lord is building in our life. And the best thing for me, actually, was to learn the accountability and partnership that comes with saying, this is not just my life, it's our life. Right? That's, that's what I needed to, I needed to learn to say that this is not just my life, it's our life. And this is the picture that the Bible gives us of the kind of relationship that God wants with us. So, um, so today we're starting a new series in the book of Leviticus called Invasive God. And we're going to look at a section of Leviticus that is referred to as the purity laws. They, they are laws instructing Israel about how to go the, about the basics of their life. Because God has invited Israel into a covenant relationship with him. And he's not just concerned about what they do when they bring their sacrifices. That's all of the instruction that we've seen so far in Leviticus is that, you know, they're bringing sacrifices. Here's what you do with the sacrifices. But he's not just concerned with that. He's not just concerned with their religious life, if you could put religious in quotation marks. He is concerned with every part of their lives. Like relationship with him is invasive. He gets involved not only in what you do when you come to the sanctuary, he gets involved in every aspect of how you live. And he is intent on making this point. So do you remember uh, the last thing that we talked about when we were in Leviticus is we talked about these guys, Nadab and Abihu, and how they uh, walked into the sanctuary. They, offer, uh, they offered what was called unauthorized fire to the Lord. They basically, at the end of the day, what they did is they made up their own worship liturgy instead of honoring the worship liturgy that God gave them. And, and, and so God killed them on the spot because they made up their own following God's rules. And so part of the reason that happened was because the priest's responsibility was not just for things regarding worship. I'm sorry, you're going to hear this go in and out today. I do apologize for that, but um, you'll learn to deal with it. Um, so, so, uh, so the priests were not just gonna instruct people in sanctuary worship, the priests were supposed to instruct people in every part of their lives. Right, so the, if they can't follow his instructions merely as it relates to worship, how in the world are they going to follow and, and teach his instructions when it comes to teaching uh, holiness in every part of life? And so in response to that moment, God, he, he says these words to the priests who are left. After Nadab and Abihu die, he says these words to the priests who remain. He says, listen up, my holiness is an all of life kind of thing. 
Like, yes, I love you. Yes, you are my treasured possession. Yes, I defeated the gods of Egypt on your behalf. Yes, I freed you from the slavery of Egypt. Yes, I saved you for relationship with me. And you need to know that this is an invasive relationship. So Leviticus 10, 10 through 11, right after Nadab and Abihu die, this is the, what he says to the priests. He says to the priests, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So after the events in chapter 10, God then goes into this kind of very long instruction on things that are holy and things that are common so that they can tell the difference, the difference between the clean and the unclean. So that's what we're going to look at, and uh, today we get the joy of hearing God tell his people what to do with their food. So Leviticus 11, 1 to 2. Verse 1 says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. So, we are very independent people, right? and we may be inclined in our hearts to approach this idea asking kind of this question. Same question I asked of my wife, but, you know, has bigger implications. Who is God to tell these people what they can and can't eat? Now, before you let your mind go there, don't forget the very first command that God ever gave to human beings. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You know, the inclination of our fleshly nature, of our sinful nature, is to question God. Right? And, you know, the enemy appeals to this regard. That's what he did with Eve, right? He appeals to this inclination in us to question him and to help us. He wants to help us put God on the witness stand, right? Saying, prove to us that you have the right to say this, to cross-examine God and say, okay, like, I get that you're holy, but isn't it a little much to care about what I eat, Right? Isn't that like a little too far? Like I understand not murdering people, right? That makes sense. Uh, I, I even understand like not coveting, not wanting the things that other people have. But eating, like surely what I eat cannot matter that much. And yet God's first command to Israel for living holy lives is related to what they eat. And God's uh, very clear command in the garden to Adam and Eve was related to what they would eat. And so, uh, verse Leviticus 11, 3 and 4, it goes on. God goes and explains his commands. Verse 3, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and choose the cut, and is important there, and choose the cut among the animals you may eat. Verse 4, nevertheless, among those that chew the cut or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And then he goes on and explains more examples and more examples. And here, God is helping them identify 
kind of his key principle for uh, the animals that they eat and the animals that they don't eat. And then he goes about illustrating that principle with a series of examples. So, so the, the principle is two qualifications. Now, you're not going to get tested on this. You don't need to remember this. But you need to know that God is actually clearly communicating his principle. The principle is two things. Number one, it parts the hoof or is cloven-footed, meaning it has a hoof that is split in the middle, right? And number two, it chews the cud. Both of these things have to be true in order for the Israelites to be able to eat the animal. So every animal they eat has to meet both of the qualifications. So verse, one, verse 4 sorry, says if it's only one or the other, it's unclean, that you can't eat it. The animal has to meet both qualifications. And so I think it's fair for us, because we don't really understand it, I think it's fair to ask the question, like, what is God up to? Right. What is he doing? Like, what is it about designating animals in this way that makes some clean and others unclean? Now, you may notice as you look a little bit further in this passage that uh, there's instruction on the kinds of birds that they can eat and the kinds of insects they can eat. I don't understand why insects are clean, right? Because I would never want to eat a bug, right? But apparently... There are insects that are clean for eating and some that are unclean for eating. And then there are kinds of seafood that are clean and unclean. And for each of them, you have very specific instruction on how to tell them apart. So rather than walk through kind of all of these qualifications and all of the examples, uh, since, I mean, for what it's worth, the qualifications don't really apply to us now. Like Jesus died. He instituted a new covenant, and guess what? Hallelujah, we can all eat bacon now, right? Like, that is a, a gift, right? So, uh, yes, that's, that's right. So I think it's fair to simply ask, what was God doing at the time with these laws? Why did these things matter to him? What did their adherence to the laws accomplish? So, so essentially what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at kind of two different questions. The first question is that what is God doing here? What is he doing with his laws? What is his purpose in giving these laws? And, and then from there, really what we're going to do is we're just going to draw some big picture conclusions about uh, kind of there's the laws, but then there's the spiritual principles, underneath the law. So, so what is he pulling out there? So first of all, what was God doing with these laws? So first, none of, none of the explanations that I am about to give will totally explain every single food law. You need to know that. None of the explanations that I'm about to give explains every single food law. With each of the explanations, the most that we could say is that this is what God was probably doing with some of the laws, right? Which is not a very helpful or full explanation, but it helps us to understand this is what God was likely doing with some of these laws. So number one, number one, God was distinguishing his people from other people, right? So, uh, so it was a common practice for various kinds of tribes, like in the land of Canaan, for all of them had their own food laws. All of them had certain foods and animals they could eat and not eat. And so we should not be surprised to see that Israel would have their own food laws as well. So Exodus 19, 5 through 6 says this. God's telling Israel, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, meaning you in the midst of all of the people that there are, you especially will be a treasure to me. For all the earth is mine and 
you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right, so God was sending them to be a, a, a nation in the midst of other nations, and his intention was that his people would live differently than the other people who were around them. That they would not wear the same kinds of clothes, that they would not eat the same kinds of food. And I would invite you to even think of Jewish people today, like one significant way that we recognize them is by what they eat. Right? We, I mean, you, you can see kosher salt in the grocery store, and you can find kosher delis in the city, right? And you can uh, find kosher wine, right? The unique boundaries that they place around food is one of the things that sets them apart from other people, right? So, so we don't have an abundance of explanation as to which specific regulations set them apart, but we can assume at least that this is one of God's intentions, right? That he wants them to be different from other people. The second thing that God is doing, his second purpose in these laws, God was protecting them from disease, right? So with uh, the common grace of science and our awareness of bacteria and different things, we come to know that like, uh, Actually, God was pretty wise in the laws that he gave, right? He stopped them from eating animals that could cause disease and, and get them sick, right? God had a level of awareness of this stuff that the Israelites themselves did not have. And so even though they didn't understand the why for every single food law, he saw and knew and understood and he placed boundaries around certain foods for their protection. So, uh, so verse 13 of Leviticus 11 says this. It says, in these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. So I think he really doesn't, yeah, I think he detests them a lot, right? The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, verse 15, every raven of any kind, verse 16, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, verse 17, the little owl, the cor, oh my goodness, cormorant, uh, the short-eared owl, 18, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, verse 19, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat, and I am particularly intrigued, given the light of our, our, our recent pandemic, right? Uh, you know, one of the stories about how this got started was that somebody ate a bat that was carrying COVID, right? Yeah, so, so there we go. Uh, proof to us that God is uh, aware of what he is doing. Right, so most of these birds, most of these birds are birds of prey. They eat other animals. And most of these birds also eat dead and decaying things. And by eating those things, these flying things can easily pick up diseases and transfer those diseases to whatever eats them. And God is aware of this. So he says, hey, with things that eat dead animals or things that eat animals in general, like a lot of animals, you, you may not know why they ate that thing or what it was that they ate. So I'm going to make it easy for you. Just don't eat them. Right? He said, I'm just going to protect you. Just don't eat those things. And in a very clear, observable way, he was keeping a promise to Israel that he had already made to them. Exodus 15, 26. He says this. He says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, he says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. He's, he's keeping promises here. He's protecting them. He's actively involved in this process with these commands. So uh, number three, God, what was God doing? What is his purpose? God was upholding 
spiritual laws established in creation. So, so God did not design creation for death, but death was introduced into creation through sin. Right? The world is now polluted with death. And God himself is life. Right? So that's, that's the contrast that we have. We have introduced death into the world and God is life. And the vast majority of animals, bugs, and birds that they can eat are animals, birds, and bugs that in general eat plants. Right? Many of the things that they can't eat, they consume dead things, or they kill and eat their prey, or they, and, and, and by the way, they don't drain blood, right? Because they're not conscious creatures. They just eat the things, right? They don't drain the blood out of the thing before they eat it. And so what that means for us is that they are actually consuming the life of the thing. There's like, we don't understand this, but there is a spiritual principle that God made clear, even with Noah, there's a spiritual principle that he made clear that there is life in the blood of a thing. So uh, Genesis 9, 3 through 4 says this, verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, but verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, we, we looked at this a bit already uh, earlier on in Leviticus, right? But this is a spiritual law that God has clarified, and we don't naturally, naturally relate to it. We don't naturally get it. But the law is that there is life in blood. So before any Israelite eats any kind of meat, they need to drain all of the blood from that animal. They can't eat the thing with the blood in it. And in some of these cases, God is putting boundaries around animals and birds and creeping things that consume life, that consume blood. It's like God is saying, these things have too near an association with death in order for you to be consuming them. Right? So don't eat them. My holy people are not going to eat some of these things. Okay, so that's three purposes, three possible likely um, purposes that God has for these food laws. Number four, we have to acknowledge that God had purposes beyond our understanding. All right, so here's the thing. Did you notice I spent like the last 10 minutes doing something that the passage in Leviticus does not do? Right? God, God does not explain the purpose of his commands. Right? I gave some likely rationales behind these laws, but consider another animal with me. Uh, Leviticus 11.6. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. Has anybody in here eaten rabbit before? I have. I have. Yeah, we have, some, we have some rabbit eaters in the room. That's good. That's good. I didn't get sick when I ate that rabbit. It was actually, it was good. It tasted like chicken. Most meat tastes like chicken for what it's worth. Yeah. Uh, why place a boundary around the rabbits? Like for any other reason, then it fits inside the parameters that God gave. God gave these parameters, right? Yes, it chews the cut, but it does not part the hoof. Like, that's the only rationale that God gives. God doesn't say, hey, if you eat it, you might get sick, or hey, that, that, those people eat it over there, and so you're going to be different from them, so you're going to eat it. You're not going to eat it. They are going to eat it, right? He doesn't say any of that. Doesn't, I mean, and doesn't it seem God is being a little bit arbitrary? 
Because I've eaten rabbit before and I've had no problem. So, so maybe you can give me a good explanation or rationale. I don't know. But it's not clear to me on the surface why God would say you can't eat rabbits. It doesn't make sense to me. And this is where we need to be very careful in seeking a why for God's commands. Because in doing so, we may lose the most important why. Why were some clean and some unclean? Because God said so. If you want to take anything away from this, like he was not telling them his particular rationale for the particular food laws. He was speaking and expecting that they would recognize holy and unholy based on the words that he spoke. Like God, God has said he wants us to be holy. God himself knows what is holy and what is not holy. God spoke and told us what is holy. And so we trust him when he tells us what is holy or not holy, even if and when it applies to what we eat. Right? So you might ask, why don't God's people follow these food laws now? Because God said so, right? Like, I mean, that's, I, I could come up with a bigger reason for you, but I mean, there is this simple truth that for Israel, God said, these are the laws that you're gonna follow. And now after Christ, he said, we don't follow those food laws anymore, right? And it's as simple as that. Jesus came and died, forgave sin, instituted a new covenant, and those previous food laws were in the old covenant, but the new covenant came with a new set of food laws. Right? This was spoken to Peter in a vision. And it's interesting, the one speaking to Peter kind of assumes that he should already know this. Right? But uh, Acts 11, 5 through 9. Peter says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Verse 6, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles, and birds of the air. And the assumption that we could make is that these animals are the kinds of animals that Israelites could not eat. Seven, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Eight, but I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I am a good Jewish person. Verse 9, but the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, I'm not going to spend time getting into why or how what was previously unclean in the old covenant is now clean in the new covenant, although I will tell you that there are many good reasons and explanations for such a thing. The point is, God has now said, that he is not declaring any food categorically unclean. Right? That's, he's clarified that. So why do I now enjoy the liberty of eating bacon as one of God's people when I would not have previously enjoyed that liberty? Because God said so. Thank you, Jesus. Right? So, so why should Christians make fasting a regular part of our spiritual practice? Because God said so. Why shouldn't we get drunk or be given to strong drink? Because God said so. 
right? Why should we exhibit self-control even in our eating? Because God said so. Because God knows holy and not holy better than I do. Right? And he has shown himself to be merciful and trustworthy in every other circumstance, so why not in these circumstances? It, it is not wrong for you to wonder why God would give a certain command. It's not wrong. It's, it, curiosity is reasonable, right, for you to wonder why. But if I need God to justify himself by giving me a good reason for his commands, you know what I'm doing? I'm placing myself in the judgment seat of God and saying, prove yourself to me. Right, so I'm so glad that we get to start this series, Invasive God, right? This idea that God is invading every part of our lives. I'm glad that we get to start it with the food laws, actually, because these laws are the least likely to make sense to us. Like, we are, they come the least naturally to us. But the point is not that it makes sense, right? What was supposed to make sense to Israel was you follow these because God spoke them, right? Because my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Right? We are so fallen that we do not naturally understand the difference between the holy and common. We are so sinful that we need someone greater than we are to tell us what we ought to do and not to do. So our main point this morning is simply this. Without God's authority, we're helpless. Without God's authority, we're helpless. So to illustrate this point, if I am an Israelite starving in the desert, I've been trying to find food, I can't find food. Let's not assume that I'm starving. Let's just assume that I haven't eaten a meal. I'm walking along in the desert, I don't know when I'm gonna get my next meal. And, uh, and I see a rabbit there in the desert. I want to eat that rabbit. I want to kill and eat that rabbit. But as an Israelite, God says, I am not allowed. That I do not have the authority to kill and eat that thing. That God has used his authority to tell me that there is a fence around that rabbit. That I am not allowed to touch or to, to kill and eat that rabbit. And that, that fence, that boundary may not make sense to me. I may not know why he put that boundary there. It may seem to me like God is holding back something for my good. But God has put the fence around the rabbit. And he has a good reason. My job is not to know the good reason. My job is to simply trust and obey the one who put the fence there. Because he has shown himself to be faithful and enough other circumstances that I know that he can speak with authority on this issue. So that's, that's kind of the, the big picture reasons, the most important reason simply being that God said so. But I think um, there are some broader spiritual principles that we can quickly draw out of, of what God is revealing. So what spiritual principles is God revealing here? Number one, he is revealing that he provides everything that we need, right? Like we tend to look at his restrictions because we call them restrictions. We look at them as restrictions. He's saying to them, I am giving you particular kinds of food to eat. 
right? Here is what I'm providing for you. Here are the things that you can eat. Now, he's, yes, also saying here are the things that you can't eat, but the point of this is God is pinpointing himself as their provider, that I have taken care of you by giving you the things that you need. And what we tend to do is we tend to look at the restriction without celebrating the provision. Number two, the second thing, principle that God is revealing is that he promotes our holiness. Holiness gets a bad rap today in Christian circles, just for what it's worth. You know, like uh, nobody wants to be like holier than thou, right? So when we talk about holiness, everybody gets this idea that like, oh, well, I don't want to be a goody two shoes, right? But holiness provides us with a unique opportunity to reveal God's character. Right? As we follow his holy commands, the quality of his character is revealed through us. Right? So his commands are the tools that help us increasingly reveal his character to the world around us. So he's promoting our holiness. And the third thing that he, the third spiritual principle is that he establishes his authority over our lives. Are we just looking for God to be a nice addition to our lives? Like we like that we have this thing that makes us feel good on Sunday, right? That you know we feel connected to God and that's nice for us. And so we'll just kind of keep that on Sunday. Um, but the rest of the days of my week, they really belong to me, right? Like it's my, it's, the rest of it is my life. Or have we recognized that he is good and that he knows good better than we do? Because if we believe that he knows good better than we do, we will trust his commands in whatever part of our lives that they go to, even when we don't understand them. So what? So what? Uh, number one, food is not the master of our hearts Christ is. Right, so after Jesus' death and resurrection, God, you, we talked about this a little bit, God takes a different approach with food. Instead of food being a dividing line between people that sets people apart, food actually becomes a tool for people to cross boundaries. Right, so, so Peter has this vision of the sheet, right? The, the sheet is telling him, like literally what happens after Peter sees the sheet is that Gentiles come to Peter's door. And what this vision was preparing him for was you are going to share a table with Gentiles. This was forbidden for Jewish people to do. They could not do it because of all the unclean things that were at the Gentile person's table. But but this vision has told Peter, hey, uh, you are going to now eat with Gentiles. Food is going to become a tool for you not to separate yourself from other people, for you to be able to go to other people, right? So, so Paul says this. He says, you know what? To the Jews, I became as a Jew, right? For the sake of the mission, for the sake of carrying forth the gospel. To the Greeks, I became as a Greek for the sake of carrying forth of the gospel. And I can promise you that part of what he is saying when he's saying that is he's saying, you know what I did? I ate what they ate, right? And I, I respected the boundaries that they respected, so that I might gain an opportunity to build a deeper relationship, so that I might not create unnecessary barriers in our relationship. So all food for us is now a gift for crossing relational boundaries 
so that we can make space in our lives for people who might not eat like us. And that we can honor the boundaries of people who have boundaries. Right, so let's get really practical about this. When we go to our vegan neighbor's house for dinner, I don't know what opinions you have of veganism, right? You might have a particular perspective, but when you go to your vegan neighbor's house for dinner and they offer to fix the food out of kindness for you, do not fix meat and take it over so that you can eat the meat that you want to eat. Right? Because we honor their boundaries for the sake of honoring them in order that the gospel might gain a hearing. That's hospitality. Right? Likewise, we don't let our boundaries that we place around food master us to the point where we are unwilling to share tables with people who don't have the same boundaries that we have. Right? That doesn't mean, I mean, I know that the people have vegetarian and some people are gluten-free and like all that stuff. I'm not saying get rid of those boundaries. I'm saying don't let the boundaries keep you from sharing tables with people. So Romans 14, 17, Paul clarifies what food laws now look like in Jesus. 17, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So uh, number two, we've already made this point, but without God's authority, I'm helpless. The Hebrews did not have microscopes so that they could see bacteria. They did not have a catalog of all of the different kinds of food that the different peoples in the land of Canaan ate. They only had one way of knowing what food would preserve their unique identity as God's people. Only had one way, only one tool. They had God's word. That was it. Which means... If God doesn't speak, they risk associating themselves with pagan worship. If God doesn't speak, they, they risk eating things that could spread disease throughout the camp. If God doesn't speak, they risk exposing themselves to the host of other threats that we are not even aware of, but that God was aware of when he made the rule. And so they literally need God's word for them to be able to survive as a people and we are no different from them. God speaks about our sexuality because misuse of sex infringes on his holiness. He doesn't need to explain himself. He has told us clearly what is holy and what is not holy, and we simply need to trust him. God warns us about gossip and bitterness, and backbiting, and competition with each other, and quarrels, because when our pride messes with relationships, it infringes on his holiness. He has told us what is holy and not holy, and we simply need to trust him. Church, this is why we need to be in God's word. But more than that, it's why we need to be doers of God's word. Christ has given us life. He has set us free from sin and death. He has offered forgiveness to us freely. Like if you could even begin to grasp the tip of the iceberg of sin that has been forgiven you, you would surrender everything to him. And you would believe and trust 
and obey this simple truth. Deuteronomy 8.3. Put your name in the blank. Alex does not live by bread alone, but Alex lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Garth does not live by bread alone, but Garth lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Mary does not live by bread alone, but Mary lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We, church, if we try to subsist our existence on the things that we have access to in this world, they will not give us life. The thing that guides us to life is the word of the Lord. So may we trust and obey increasingly the word that he has given us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it is hard to talk about obedience because um, when speaking of the expectation that we obey, it often exposes us for our disobedience. But even as I speak up here, I can pinpoint little nooks and crannies, places in my life where Yes, we sing those words, trust and obey, and we hear the words that, that your word leads us to life, that, that we shall not live by bread alone, but that we should live by every mouth that proceeds from the mouth, uh, uh, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, and, um, and Lord, I uh, quickly see you exposing places where I am failing to trust and obey you. So Lord, I lay that down before you. I pray that people in this room, as we hear about obedience and the call to, to obedience, to dig deeper with you, that we would not uh, too quickly just look at ourselves as failures, although it is very clear that, that we have failed, Lord, but, but may you drive our eyes and our attention to the grace of Jesus. May we never forget that thing from which we have been delivered, that death and sin and hell are defeated for our sins that you have conquered things that we had no power over and it is your grace to us that changes us, that, that leads us into repentance, that leads us towards obedience. So Lord, my ask this morning, Holy Spirit, my ask this morning is that you would captivate our hearts not with a sense of trying to build up our self-righteousness or be impressive because of our obedience, captivate our minds and our hearts with the wondrous grace of Jesus. That through your goodness, you might lead us into obedience. Thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name.